In the third hindrance I talked about this morning was ill will, anger, and the antidote in meditation was the delight that we can experience as a sensation. Now, ill will was compared by the Buddha to a bilious disease. The one who is having the ill will is having the disease. And when we're angry and upset and have negativities in the mind, we are not at ease. So it is a dis-ease. And the antidotes in daily living are loving-kindness meditation which is only a method to direct the mind. And, of course, it is also of even greater importance to try and have this kind of loving feeling towards other people in one's daily life. Because that is the greatest antidote for anger. Now, the meditation helps us. And without the meditative experience, it will not be possible to change our negativities to such an extent that they hardly arise. But if we don't support that in daily living and just are satisfied with a pleasant meditation, we are not getting the benefit from meditation that is possible. If our meditative experiences, if we do them diligently and if we persevere with meditation, if they do not change, our daily reactions, something went wrong. Either we're imagining that we're meditating or we haven't understood what it's all about. It's got to change us. It will change us slowly and we may not at first notice it, but looking back over some years, we will realize that it has been an enormous change. If a meditator doesn't find that his or her reactions in daily life are different than they used to be, that his or her feelings are different than they used to be, far more positive, far more equanimous than he or she was meditating. Sometimes we think we are. We may sit on a little pillow. But unless we have the understood experience, it will not make a difference in our lives. The experience is that which happens in meditation, whatever it may be. It may be this delightful feeling, or it may be not. It may be our distracting thoughts. It may be fear. 
It may be anything. These are our experiences. If we don't understand them, we do not have an insight into them. They're useless to us. Like a small child that puts its hand on a hot stove and screams with pain and doesn't know that it's a hot stove that should be avoided. So put the hand on there again until finally it dawns on the child that needs to be avoided. The understood experience. If meditation does not bring that, we are sitting on the pillow in vain. We do not have to imagine that we have to be anything special. We do not have to be or belong to anything special. We have to understand our experiences. And in meditation, the experiences are easier to understand than in daily living because they arise within without the outer triggers. If we become fearful in meditation, there wasn't anybody there that was threatening us. If we have a delightful sensation, there wasn't anybody there that was giving us strokes. So we can try to find out what is this experience. In order to understand it, we do need some information. And that is what is meant by knowing more about the teaching. The information which is available easily, but also which we need to take into ourselves as part and parcel of our mental makeup so that we actually find out what makes us tick. It's fascinating if we take the trouble to find out what makes us tick. I will go to a special on a particular way of explaining that, which is the Buddhist explanation of how human beings act and react. Ill will is something that arises because we don't like what's happening. Now one of the instances where we can recognize this in meditation is when we have, for instance, a pain in the knee or in the back or in the shoulder or wherever it happens to arise. A painful feeling. Now, the ordinary and immediate reaction to that is dislike. And with that comes the immediate wish to get away from it, not to have it. So there comes then the almost unconscious movement, trying to get out of the painful feeling. In order to gain 
something from this experience. We need to understand it fully. And if we do, we have gained quite an important insight into our own makeup, which is identical to the makeup of everybody else, which should help us in two ways. First of all, it may help us to stop reacting in the same way over and over again, and it also may help us to have more compassion for others because they have just as much dukkha as we have. So what is happening here actually when we get this unpleasant feeling in the knee or the back or the shoulders or wherever it may be is that we have a touch contact, one of the five sense contacts, touch. All sense contacts bring about a feeling. There's no way of stopping that. Whatever sense contact we make, it will bring with it a feeling. That, that's the reason why I've said, if you don't feel anything in loving-kindness meditation, never mind, think it. Thinking is also a sense contact. And if you think it often enough and long enough, you will notice the feeling that comes with it. Here with the touch contact, it's not very difficult to get the feeling. There are basically three kinds of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Because the neutral one is at least not unpleasant, we're quite happy with it. And we only deal with pleasant and unpleasant. So for the moment, we'll forget the neutral feeling. <coughs> Here we have an unpleasant one. The next step that arises in the sequence of human recognition is what is called perception, which is the labeling. Having this unpleasant feeling, we give it the label pain or whatever we like to call it. But let's just stay with that label. And following that, comes our reaction. And that reaction is an immediate dislike, almost unconscious. Because pain is disliked by all beings. Now the very first recognition of this experience, the first understanding of that is that since we dislike pain ourselves, we can deduce that all beings dislike pain. So we will take great care not to inflict any pain, neither physical nor emotional or mental. Secondly, we can also understand from that experience that we're not the only ones that experience pain. Everybody does. It may be in the sitting, it may be in anything. It may not be physical, it may be mental, emotional. It may be all three or one of them. But certainly we are not singled out. We do not have 
each one of us a monopoly on dukkha. On the contrary, it's universal. We can see that quite easily when we are sitting so quietly in meditation. Nobody's doing a thing to us, nobody's hurting us, nobody wants anything from us, and yet we're not happy because something hurts, whatever it is that hurts something. So to think that we are the only ones like that would be foolishness. Just me amongst five billion people? Surely not. That kind of understanding will help us to have more of a feeling of togetherness with others and therefore more of compassion with other people's difficulties. We're not the only ones that have them. Everybody's got them. And also, besides that, togetherness and compassion, we can also recognize very easily that the body is constantly unsatisfactory. We're just sitting, wanting to meditate, and after 10, 20, or 30 minutes, it starts acting up. It's doing something that we don't really want it to do. So from that, we must learn that the body itself is not a satisfactory manifestation at all, needs constant attention, and does things that we don't want it to do, which should put our ownership of this body into question. So you see how important it is to pay full attention to whatever is happening in the meditation, whether you get a delightful sensation or a painful one. Either way, we can learn from it. The delightful one should teach us a lot and take us into calm and tranquility, but the painful one should teach us just as much or more. So it is wise not to prefer one over the other. Both are useful if it is an understood experience. Actually, we usually say that Dukkha is our best teacher. There is nothing better because it forces us to pay attention. You may have noticed that the mind may have been quite drowsy and then there's pain. And then there is very good attention. <laughs> so what better teacher can you have? That's the best one. And also, Dukkha is such a good teacher, much better than any living teacher. If you go to the living teacher and say, I've got pains and I don't like to meditate anymore and uh, I don't feel happy. I want to go home. So the teacher will most likely say, well, I'm very sorry about that, but if you want to go home, all right, you have to go home. Now, try saying that to Dukkha. You say to Dukkha, you know, I don't feel so good. I really don't like it here. I really want to go home. 
Dukkha is going to say, that's fine, but I'm coming along. <laughs> it's the one teacher you can rely on. It's always there. But only if we listen to it. Only if we use it. Only if we have the understood experience. Experience what happens, the understanding to really see it in its right connotation. That is wisdom, the understood experience. So here we have a knee pain. And so we recognize the fact that this body is not satisfactory, does things that we don't want it to do. So the ownership of this body is put into question. Why does it do these things that I don't want it to do if I'm the owner of it? Why can't I command what it should be doing? Sitting nicely, quietly, comfortably for a full hour without ever giving any difficulty to me. Why won't it do that? The next thing is that not only is it unsatisfactory, but because it ha brings us this pain, we can see that others must have the same pains that we have. And we feel connected and we feel more compassionate. But last not least, we must learn to understand the content of a human being because it's all being put into play here. And I've already mentioned it, but I will repeat it because it's not that easy to see if one has never paid attention to it before. The first thing is the sense contact, which happens all the time. At this particular moment, we are seeing, hearing, touching, and thinking. The only thing we're not doing is tasting and smelling. We might even do the latter also. We do not do them simultaneously. We do one after the other, but in such quick succession that it seems as if we're doing the whole thing at once. We're looking and hearing and touching and thinking, and it appears to be all happening at once, but it can't. <coughs> but the Buddha said we can have 3,000 mind moments in the blink of an eyelid, but not together, one after the other. Luckily, we don't usually have that many, but we have enough to make it quite strenuous. So we're having sense contacts all the time when we're awake. And every single sense contact produces a feeling, pleasant or unpleasant. Some of them very strong, some of them mild. If we are a young man and see a beautiful girl walking by, the feeling that is aroused might be very strong. And if we, for instance, stand on the grass and look at the ants, we may have a milder feeling, not so strong, but a feeling is there. 
always. Now with that feeling comes the label, always. And with the label as the next step comes the reaction, the mental formation. Now here with the painful feeling in the legs or in the back, it's very easy to see. So next time it happens, you can check it out, that sequence. You've got to have the feeling first before you can label it. You've got to have the feeling first before you can react to it. And first comes the sense contact. So the reaction in the case of an unpleasant feeling is one of ill will, unless we do something about it. And the ill will is shown, first of all, in the mind by disliking the feeling, and secondly then by trying to get away from it. This is how we live our lives, trying to get away from the unpleasant feeling, trying to get near to the pleasant one, and trying to stay there. Keep it the pleasant feeling. Obviously, if you just take one look at this sequence, it's impossible to keep the pleasant feeling. We can get it again and again and again, and we use up our energy, our time, and our whole life trying to get them, the pleasant feelings. And then sometimes we're surprised because we're not getting them. And other times we're quite elated because we're getting them. And yet, all that's happening is sense contact and then our reaction to the whole matter. And if we don't one day see this sequence and this ever-recurring and always identical printout that's being printed out in our mind because the buttons are being pushed, we'll never be able to have the peacefulness and the happiness and the joy within which we all have an inkling that they are actually available to us. As long as we're trying to get them through the sense contact, we'll always be at the losing end of it. We can't keep any sense contact. Just imagine trying to keep something that you hear. How can you? Or that you see? Or that you think? or that you smell, or that you taste. Can you guess how many of these sense contacts you've had in this life? It's impossible to guess. I think the numbers are astronomical. There's no way we can guess. Astronomical numbers of sense contacts we've had. And obviously we've liked some and we've disliked others, and we're on our way trying to find the ones that we like and run away or get out of the way of those that we don't like. And because we use our time and energy like that, we haven't got the time nor the energy to really penetrate into this and see 
that it doesn't really pay to live like that. Sense contacts are our lot anyway. We cannot go around with our eyes closed, our ears stuffed with cotton wool, our nose stuffed up. It's impossible. We will have sense contacts. But if we're searching for the pleasant and constantly reject the unpleasant, we're going to waste our whole life doing that. And just think about it for a moment. How much time we have already spent on that to no avail whatsoever. The pleasant ones are gone and the unpleasant ones are gone. So when the pain in the leg appears in the meditation session, this is the beginning of that understanding. So what do we do with that unpleasant feeling? We recognize, first of all, the sequence, how it goes. Now we may have to go back to it. The first time around we must miss it usually. There is this feeling and this is unpleasant. Now back again. Aha. Sense contact, feeling, labeling, reaction. Now instead of having this reaction, if we want to make us put a stop to this just once and see whether it's possible to change this whole sequence, instead of having the usual reaction, just taking a look at the feeling as an unpleasant feeling without the label, without the reaction. It's just unpleasant. And the mind usually can handle that quite well. And we can go back to the breath. And then, of course, the mind again goes back to the unpleasant feeling, starts disliking it, We are recognizing that this isn't going to get us anywhere. Again, we look at it and say it's just an unpleasant feeling and go back to the breath. Anybody can do that two or three times, maybe more often. And when the mind then says, well, this is all very interesting and very nice, but I can't sit like that, then (laughs) you change your position slowly and gently so as not to disturb the neighbor too much and also not yourself too much. It is much better to change the position and be the victim of one's own unpleasant feeling, admittedly, instead of sitting there with ill will towards the feeling, towards the meditation, towards the whole situation, and then getting a whole... uh, chain of thoughts about it, how one could do all this much better and how one could spend one's time more pleasantly. Anything is better than ill will. So it's useless to sit with an unpleasant feeling and have ill will. But it is extremely useful to see how it works, to get to know oneself like that. And then Try to overcome the reaction for a little while, as long as possible. And as we overcome the reaction, it gives a great deal of security. Because we realize that we do not have to react. We can choose to react. 
Now when we learn to choose to react, that is the moment when we feel much more secure. As long as we're reacting nilly-willy, whatever it is, we're reacting to it, either by liking it or by disliking it, then, of course, we are like a leaf in the wind being pushed around by outside circumstances. The minute we take a stand and say, I don't have to react, I can if I want to, I can if I have to because it's beyond me to sit with the pain, then we are taking charge of our own reactions. If we do that in the meditation once, twice, three times, it becomes much easier and the pain threshold also becomes much greater, becomes easier to sit <coughs> with time. It all takes time. But also, we can use exactly the same technique in daily living. Not by suppressing our feelings, it's hardly possible to suppress a uh, knee pain. So it's useless to suppress an emotional feeling just because we don't want to react to it. People who do that do it habitually and find it very difficult to get in touch with what they're really feeling. But by knowing the feeling and recognizing one's ability to choose and if we do not wish to react, we can just see that unpleasant feeling as just as impermanent as the pleasant ones. All this can be learned from having a knee pain. So you can see how useful that can be. Ill will, being like a bilious disease, makes life very difficult. But those people who have a lot of hate, anger, dislike, are usually the ones who have a great incentive to practice. Because it's very unpleasant to have all that ill will. Those people who have more of greed find a lot of pleasantness in life and their incentive to practice is not that strong. So you can see that both have their advantages. But under no circumstances should we enlarge upon our ill will through any discomfort in the sitting position. That's foolish. But it's equally foolish to just start moving at the slightest discomfort. Meditation should help us to become aware of our own inner reactions and being in a way which we do not have a chance in daily life because in daily life we do have to react very often, very quickly. So here we have a chance to see this quite clearly.
The antidote for anger is, of course, easily seen, love. And love in the Buddhist terminology is not what we think is love. When we talk about love or experience it or see it on the screen or read about it in a book, it's always connected to another person. It could be connected to an ideal, but it's usually connected to another person, sometimes to two or three of them. And it's always connected to reciprocation. If it isn't reciprocated, then it is a tragedy. If we have that kind of love, where it has to be reciprocated and where it is dependent upon another person, it is always imbued with fear. And fear is part of ill will and hate. The fear of losing, the fear of not having, so that this kind of love can never be totally satisfactory. It never brings about the ease and expansion of the heart that the love that the Buddha talks about and calls metta can do. The love that the Buddha teaches and talks about can become an expansion of the heart unlimited. It never has anything to do with a particular person. It's only a quality of our own heart. One of the mistakes that humanity makes is that practically everyone is looking for somebody to love them. And if we find somebody that loves us, who loves us, we feel quite elated about it. Why? Because it seems to prove that we are lovable. Should that person change his or her mind later on, as people are prone to do, then all of a sudden we are no longer lovable. Why? Nobody knows. But that's usually the conclusion one has, which is all completely deluded and has nothing to do with love. If we're looking for somebody to love us, that would be then that person's feeling. It supports our ego and we might be able to reciprocate also, but it isn't an expansion of the heart. It isn't the ability to have purity in the heart. It is strictly a marketplace undertaking. Very often we even check out whether the other one loves us as much as we love him or her. And if that's not the case, we feel cheated. We do not feel that we're being appreciated enough. It's all very unpleasant and usually uh, also 
brings about the kind of misunderstandings that I suppose everybody only knows too well. It has nothing to do with love. Love is the warmth of the heart which goes out to others because it is there, not because the other one is lovable. If we're looking for somebody who's totally lovable, we're looking for an enlightened being. There are very few of those around. Hard to find. And since we ourselves aren't one either, it doesn't seem reasonable to look for one. (laughs) So we might as well just stick to the practice of trying to bring about this feeling of togetherness with other people, the feeling of warmth for others, the feeling of caring, of concern. With that goes, very importantly and centrally, loving oneself, which does not mean indulging oneself. The two are not the same. In fact, indulging oneself into all sorts of things is not loving oneself because it is usually quite detrimental to either one's health or one's well-being if one indulges oneself. But loving oneself means that one has a warm feeling for oneself. One appreciates one's efforts. One appreciates one's good sides. One does not blame oneself constantly for all the things one thinks one is doing wrong, might, might actually be doing wrong, but only recognizes them and wants to change them and is grateful for the ability to recognize them. In other words, there's no downputting of oneself and therefore no downputting of others. It's a feeling of flowing with that what is in oneself and flowing with those things that happen with other people. It's a feeling of being embedded in the totality of existence around us, people, nature, whatever it is. It's all part and parcel of our lives. And if there's a feeling of caring and concern, if there's feeling of togetherness, if there's a feeling of having warmth in the heart, then it's very easy to be with others no matter who they are. When we start judging them, and everyone is prone to do that, then, of course, things become difficult because everybody makes mistakes. But we have to remember that we ourselves make them too. So why should we expect that others don't? It's the clear and effective antidote for our anger, for our ill will, for our rejections, for our resistances. The less anger and resistance we have, the easier it is to meditate. It's a point upon which it all hinges. It's like the central point. Because if we have already developed a loving heart, then we know to give ourselves. 
we give our love, we give our warmth, we give our caring, so we can give ourselves to people, to the meditation. This giving of ourselves to that makes the meditation possible. As, so, as long as there are any resistances, any rejections, any anger, it will always be a barrier to the meditation. It doesn't matter what we reject. We may not reject the meditation. We may be rejecting the um, political situation in uh, Europe. Maybe justifiably so, who knows. But it's a rejection. And this is something one has to become very clear about. That rejection is rejection, no matter what we reject. That dislike is dislike, no matter what it is that we dislike. And if we justify it, then we strengthen the dislike. When we see that it is nothing but an impediment for our own happiness, then we can deal with it in the right way. As long as we see it as, as that, we will try and change it. When we see it as being justified because that person is so bad or because the situation is so awful, and surely that is quite true, but that doesn't justify our anger, our hate, our dislike. Why? Why should it justify that? One of the sentences that might help us to understand that is, we do not like the crime, but we can love the criminal. If we can remember that, it will help us greatly. Because on this planet, in humanity, there are so many things that we can dislike. They're innumerable. But none of that will help us. Nor will it help the planet, nor will it help humanity. What is needed is a loving and caring attitude for everything and everyone. Without any reason behind it, just because our heart can do it. In fact, it's the only thing that our heart is needed for. Our mind is needed for the intuitive and logical thinking. Our heart is needed for loving. We must never think that loving can stop at the heart of one or two people. If we have that situation, like a family situation, it's an excellent breeding ground for love, if we can use it as such. We get to know what it's like to care for others, to give ourselves our time, our energy, our abilities to others. But if we stop right there, we limit ourselves to such a minute aspect of our possibilities and abilities that it is a great shame. We have far greater ability than that. So if we can use that as a seedbed or breeding ground, 
to recognize what it's like to love and then expand on that more and more then we are doing something which is spiritual growth and that can be done and should be done in everyday life that is quite outside of meditation quite outside of a meditation course in everyday life every one of us has such an opportunity we all meet people some of us meet more than others and some of these people might be quite nice and others might be quite objectionable but that's again being judge and jury they they are our training ground we learn from that and the more objectionable a person is the more of a teacher he or she is for us so we should be grateful if we meet up with someone who's really awful because <laughs> that really gives us that opportunity where we can train ourselves and if we can't manage we can see that we have been it's beyond our capacity at that moment so we'll have to try again another time but in daily life from morning to night we meet up with people and they are of course our greatest challenge we don't have that much trouble with animals nor with trees or or bushes because they don't answer back and this is where we use the awareness <coughs> that we have established through the meditation by becoming aware of our own inner reaction even the slightest negative one needs to be substituted that's a purification of our emotions and it is easier to substitute the slight negative ones than the major ones if we hate somebody really hate somebody it's very difficult to change that into love but if somebody just irritates us it's not that difficult we have several ways and means of doing that and the more you remember of those ways and means the easier it will be to practice the first thought is if i'm negative i'm making bad karma i'm only hurting myself if i'm negative resisting angry hateful whatever it may be then I'm making ruts in my heart and mind where this dislike finds it much easier to settle the next time. I'm not called upon to be judge and jury. This person who's irritating me also has good qualities. Can I see them? If I can't, I can immediately know this person has just as much dukkha as i have can i have compassion in order to have compassion for another we have to have compassion for ourselves obviously compassion is empathy with feeling comes with so it's a with feeling what do we have compassion for in ourselves for all our difficulties we don't have to blame ourselves for them we don't have to justify them 
We just have to have compassion for them. There isn't a human being alive that doesn't have difficulties, except the enlightened ones. So the compassion for ourselves, for the difficulties, can then translate into having that feeling for others. They, they might make a smiling face, but we know that everybody has some pain, physical, mental or emotional, some dissatisfaction, some unfulfillment. Everybody has it. So with that, we can change an irritation into compassion or even the warmth of caring. When we do that in daily life, especially with the small irritations, it becomes easier and easier to do it with the big ones. The big ones are our challenges. Those people who really irritate us, who really make life difficult for us, they are there as our teachers. And if we use that, it's an understood experience. We have wisdom. And if we use it more than once, we will find a great change in our heart. If we are able to do this, if we are able to change the negative into the positive over and over again, we find great self-confidence because we know it doesn't matter what happens, we'll be able to react in a positive and appropriate manner. We're not going to be thrown by our own emotions. That kind of secure feeling makes it possible also to see clearly because we do not have any fear. By being like that, and by practicing like that, I should say, fear also, feeling threatened, becomes less and less. Because we realize that we're all together in this. We're not separate, we're not isolated. Everyone is actually in the same boat. And if we have a feeling of togetherness, it's also easier to have a feeling of lovingness. It is the kind of inner way of being which keeps us at ease with ourselves and with others and therefore paves the way for meditation. And then if the meditation works better, again it paves the way for unconditional love. Metta, M-E-T-T-A, which is the Buddha's word for that, is unconditional love. There's no condition. And because there's no condition, we're not afraid to lose it, nor are we afraid that somebody isn't going to want it. We just give it. And the more we give that, the more we give ourselves. And the essence of the teaching and the goal of it all is the giving up of oneself. So one has to start with giving oneself. And that's also the secret of good meditation. 
there are, although there are two more hindrances and two more factors of meditation, I felt it was important to elaborate on this one. may have a chance to talk about the other two tomorrow. At this point, if there are any questions, this is the time to ask them. And I don't think I'll be able to see anybody putting up a hand in the back. So if you have a question, say it. Anything? Perfectly clear everything, huh? Just needs to be done. In order to start, please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Now think of your most beloved person and let the feeling for that most beloved person arise in you and feel it completely. And then transfer that same feeling to yourself. Just direct that same feeling to yourself no difference between you and the most beloved person. Fill yourself with that feeling from head to toe. Surround yourself with it. Feeling warm and secure within it. Now put your attention on the person sitting nearest you in this hall and let that same feeling that you have for your most beloved person reach out to the one nearest you, filling him or her from head to toe with that feeling of love. Think of your most beloved person again and then extend that same feeling to everyone here, 
no difference between people, filling everyone here with that same love that you have for your most beloved person. It's a feeling from your heart. It needs no reason. Now think of your most beloved person again and extend that same feeling you have for that person to your parents. Fill them from head to toe with your love. Surround them with it. Making them feel warm and protected. Now let the feeling that you have for your most beloved person reach out to those people who are nearest and dearest to you, giving them the gift of your heart without expecting any return. Think of your good friends and reach out to them with the same feeling that you have for your most beloved person, filling them from head to toe with the warmth and care from your heart and embracing them with the depth and profundity of your friendship. Now think of those people whom you meet in your everyday life, be it at work or at home, on the street or in the shops, 
wherever you meet them. Let them all have the same feeling that you have for your most beloved person. Take them into your heart. Make no difference between any of them. Now think of anyone whom you find difficult. Now recognize that the dislike is a barrier in your own heart. Arouse the feeling for your most beloved person and then reach out to the difficult person with that same feeling so that your heart can be free of that impediment. Now think of those people whose lives are far more difficult than ours. In hospital, in prison, in refugee camps, blind, crippled, hungry, without friends, without shelter. Arouse the feeling for your most beloved person. And then extend that same feeling to these people whom you may imagine wherever you can think of them. Giving them the warmth and care from your heart, your compassion, your willingness to help.
put your attention back on yourself. Let your most beloved person be part of your inner being so that there's no division between you and your most beloved person so that the feeling you have extends inside of you from head to toe the lovingness, the warmth and the care surrounding yourself with those feelings feeling warm and protected May all beings have love in their hearts. 